0: I think there's only 45 people in North Dakota. But... <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry if you're so from North all Dakota. listeners, yeah,
1: from North Dakota, <laughs> sorry. You could restore
0: Hi, this is your host, W. Curtis Preston. I had originally planned to do this episode as one long episode. By the time we were done, we were at like an hour and 25 minutes, and that's just too much, I think, for one episode. So we decided to split it into two. The first episode will be um, about the pandemic and where it is, how we got here, sort of the you know the, the current state of the situation. And then next week's episode will focus on uh, the future, the the uh the vaccines and the hope. So I'm mean, with that. I'm going to turn you back over to the episode. Hi and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host W Curtis Preston aka Mr. Backup and I have with me some guy that I found wandering down the street for <laughs> <Prisata> Sodamaliani. <laughs>
1: hey Curtis. Uh, I think that's a pretty good description. <laughs>
0: yeah. So Happy Diwali.
1: Yes, it is Diwali today.
0: Today is the start of Diwali, and uh, now it, it's. you said it's five days? It's the last day of Diwali. Oh, it's the last day. It's the last day of Diwali. I Actually, wait, don't
1: hold me to that. I'm pretty sure at least that this is what's normally the last day. Now, if you don't know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> being raised where I was at and whatnot, I didn't even know there was a thing called Diwali until I started working for Druva.
1: Oh, I actually, I take yeah. it back. It's not the last day.
0: Oh, it's not the last day? No. <laughs> okay. It's something. It's not yes. the first day though.
1: Yeah. It's not it's... the first day.
0: Okay. So we're just mid Diwali.
1: I think it's like the second day right now.
0: Well, we have another returning guest. It's a little sad that we have to have, <laughs> we have to have this guest back because we're going to talk uh coronavirus. Um, you know, and if that, if that, you know, if immediately you're like, Oh, you know, I'm tired of hearing about coronavirus. Well, you know what? So are we, but uh, you know, it, it's a super important topic, and you know she was so helpful to us when she was on the podcast, you know, several months ago, back when this all started. And uh, for those who don't know her, she has an MD from Cornell, got a, a master's in public health from Columbia in 2012, and she studies harms reduction, which is this idea of weighing the the risks and benefits of various public policies, which is going to come really into play in the discussion today. And and then just to, you know, fully round her out as a person, she's also a Jeopardy! champion and uh, having won over $100,000 on Jeopardy! Uh, welcome back to the podcast, Lindsay Schultz, MD, MPH.
2: Thank you for having me. I wish it was under completely cheerful circumstances. But yeah, at least yeah. we do have good news to, to go along with the uh, more perilous news.
0: <laughs> we do have some good stuff to talk about, yeah. So
1: uh, just a slight clarification. You said undergrad at Cornell. I think you meant Carnegie Mellon, correct, oh, Lindsay? That,
2: that is correct.
1: See, uh, there you go. I will not take insults, <laughs> Curtis. I will not take insults, Curtis.
2: Cornell Med, uh, Columbia MPH, and Carnegie Mellon undergrad.
0: I left out the undergrad is what you're saying. So I, so I so basically, you're saying I've insulted your alma mater by yes. not also mentioning her undergrad. Yes. Okay.
1: Yes, you have.
2: The curse of the Scottish. Uh.
1: <laughs>
0: Just a, a, a disclaimer that uh, Prasanna and I do both work for Druva and this is not a Druva podcast. The opinions that you hear are our own. Neither of us, of course, uh, are medical experts. So anything, <laughs> um, we're going to leave that stuff up to Lindsay. When we had you on, uh, things were just starting to get scary. And I, I still remember the first episode that we did and uh, not, not just, uh, you, we did with you, but when, when Prasanna and I were just looking at the numbers and we were looking at, uh, I, I, before I learned any of the stuff that I learned from you and I was looking at the, you know, the perspective or suggested, or I don't even know what the right word is, the, the, are not value for this disease. And, that, that I remember coming up with a number that at the time seemed absolutely insane. I remember
1: you saying the number and being like, Oh, this just seems crazy
0: because we, because the number was somewhere around a million people, you know, uh, potentially dying. And, Ooh. um, and now that number hopefully isn't going to happen, but it no longer seems insane. We watch from a very different lens than you watch and you've watched the news over the last several months. Um, basically depending on who you are um, you either think things are overblown or or things are pretty dire um you know how how have things from your vantage point progressed in the last uh, several months
2: so i I think there's definitely um you know, compared to, I think the last time I was on was maybe March or April, when we were still mm-hmm. sort of in the throes of this first hitting and exploding on the West Coast and in New York and really not knowing, you know, what it was going to look like to bring it under control in a place, you know, what deaths rate we're going to look like, um, you know, how many people were really going to need to be hospitalized. Like, I remember back then we were literally worried about, like, figuring out how we were going to have enough ventilators for patients. Right. Um. And, and the thing that, you know, from a, like a medical perspective that has been positive since then is, you know, we were prepared for this to be just an onslaught of a very aggressive, very new acting virus that it really hasn't quite turned out to be. Um, this acts a lot like, you know, the other viruses that, that we're familiar with just in a slightly more aggressive fashion that, you know, it has a couple molecular features that let it spread easier, that let it spread before you have symptoms. Um, And that, that seem to predispose it for spread that it originally, I remember us talking a lot about the R-naught that we said, you know, right. the average number of <clears throat> people infected by this virus was maybe going to be two or three. Mm-hmm. Really, as we've gone along, what we've started to see might be a more important value is something called a K value. And the easiest way to describe what that is, is it's not the average number of, of you know, people spreading, because what we found out is this is really more a disease of, of super spreader events. Meaning, you know, you may be in one situation that it's one person at one event spreads the disease to 10 other people there. And those ten other people that have gotten the virus then go on to spread it to maybe one other person apiece, maybe nobody, maybe occasionally two. So we're looking at a different epidemiological setup of how this virus is working, um, which is why, you know, every now and again, you'll you'll hear about, you know, a wedding or at a gym or at a nightclub or at
1: Sturgis. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So you're, you're looking at, you know, you, so people aren't experiencing it as this, this trickle of every day they're seeing someone they know get infected. It's, you know, it will be, it's difficult to predict which wedding or which restaurant or, you know, which gym class is going to have this super spreader effect. But when it takes off, you can trace things from like, I know there's been weddings in Maine. There was recently a wedding on Long Island that from that one wedding, one person coming infected gave it to something like 55 people at the wedding who then spread it to nursing homes, to a prison system. And then so you're taking it into areas that it's predisposed to spread because everything is so confined. And that's when you really have difficulty with this virus taking off. Um, so more of what we've been thinking about is because we know everyone's, you know, exhausted with the shutdowns, you know, I don't think anyone would ever talk about, you know, a complete shutdown, you know, nationwide again, you know, I just, I don't think that's something that we'd be talking about now, like we were looking at in March and April. I think that was right around the time that, you know, we were all sort of like essentially across the country, just saying, you know, we need, we need a second to get a handle on this. Um, And now there's sort of the way we look at it is you can be more controlled in your response because we know this has also been a major economic struggle for people. You know, so so if we look at, you know, the data of, you know, where the place is most likely to spread, you know, it's it's not the the casual contact that you have with someone, you know, in the grocery store. Like the last time I was on, you know, we were all still washing our groceries, you know, as soon as right. we brought them inside, we were letting our mail sit outside, you know, I as time has gone... <laughs> <laughs> I, I will go with, it doesn't hurt anything to do. Um, but as time has gone on, it just, the risk of, you know, spread from, from mail or from your groceries or something like that, or, you know, takeout meals, you know, is so low that it's, it's not where most of, um, our efforts are focused now. Now we know the chances are much higher, you know, indoors, you know, in somewhere that you're talking, you know, eating, singing, laughing. Um, You know, essentially I've described what every holiday (laughs) gathering is like, unfortunately, right. Um, You know, places that don't have good ventilation, you know, so we have, we have a reasonable idea the type of environments that are more likely to spread spread the disease now which is why you know everywhere has to be so careful with things like bars and indoor restaurants um you know yeah. church gatherings things like that
0: yeah that's that's the thing I was I was gonna say is you, you, you just basically described a lot of businesses right you mm-hmm. described bars and restaurants those are the two big ones churches I, I think churches, Are actually less hit like they can continue to do what they do virtually and people are continuing to give so that the church can continue to exist i'm worried i I mean i'm not saying they're not impacted but they're impacted less than say a bar you can't have a bar you can't have a bar on zoom (laughs) right Um, although there is yeah there actually i saw a business somewhere that was delivering mixed drinks um like, again, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? But you just described a lot of businesses mm-hmm. that a lot of people just basically stopped going. You know, there's two groups of people. There's the people that had just said, well, I'm not going to go to a bar or a restaurant, period, no matter what the uh, conditions. And then there's another group of people that, well, they they go unless there's a, you know, there's a limit. Right now, I, I live in San Diego. We just, today went into the purple tier again. Um, and so no more indoor dining, uh, no more indoor churches. And, uh, but but oddly enough, there was a local lawsuit that classified our two major strip clubs as artists. And so the two strip clubs are open, the churches are closed. Uh, oh welcome, welcome to San Diego. Um, <laughs> So, so that's interesting about, you know so so so, so in your role, you know, this idea of um, you know playing out the different you know the, the risks or the pros and cons of different public policies, this is this ha- this goes at the core issue of what we've discussed, no matter which side you know, they're, they're, we, we can't shut down the entire country and we ca- we can't kill every restaurant and bar. But at the same time, if, if every restaurant and bar is a potential super spreader event, we, we have to limit them. How, how do you find that happy medium there?
2: You know, I think, I think it's very difficult. And unfortunately, I think in the areas where spread is particularly bad this time, um, because there is currently no governmental support. Uh, available for small businesses. You know, I I understand the position that a lot of whether it's a mayor or governor finds themselves in that from a public health perspective, it's it's so hard, you know, to listen to a, a local leader, you know, you know, not have a mask mandate or, you know, to not be closing, you know, restaurants or bars, you know, so in those cases, you know, we understand that they're they're trying to find a way, you know, to keep people's livelihoods in existence. Right. You know, when we have, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel that fairly soon we'll at least be able to plan out what next year looks like. You know, I understand those challenges. And even if it's a matter of limiting capacity in restaurants, you know, some studies right. have shown that even if you if you cut a restaurant capacity in half and make it have good ventilation. You do a decent job of tamping down the chances of viral spread there. You know, somewhere like a bar that you can't have outdoor service is hard because you're talking about a lot of people in a small space with primarily alcohol involved that is going to, you know, lower somebody's inhibitions, meaning you're going to be a lot less likely.
0: Yeah. And and we're also coming into a time of the year when there's a lot of places in the country where you cannot do stuff outside.
2: (laughs) Right. You know? and, and unfortunately, like and this is sort of um, I know you mentioned kind of asking, like, what is it about the winter that we're looking at? And this is something that and again, it's, it's anecdotal because we still don't have great evidence that this is necessarily a virus that this past summer was responding to temperature. Um, we do think there's some chance that viruses like this, that any coronavirus um, will be a little bit more stable in cooler, drier weather. Um, a lot to do with the humidity. If what you're does talking stable about, mean? Um, if you are talking about the way these viruses spread, it, it's not like the the virus is out just floating by itself. It's essentially in droplets of liquid. Uh-huh. And if you're talking about a more humid environment, which another piece of advice we give is to make sure your indoor settings maintain some sort of reasonably humidified uh, you know, air level, is if there's more water droplets in the air from the humidity, those water droplets carrying the virus are more likely to hit another water droplet and be heavy enough that they get pulled down out of the air, meaning they're not spreading anymore. But if the oh. air is dry, it's much easier for those droplets just to continue propping. Oh, way-
0: oh, that's interesting. So maintaining a higher level of humidity. Right. So is there a
1: recommended range that they found yet? Or is this all still under currently being researched? I think it's still under
2: investigation. Okay. Um, you know, I think it's it's any, you know, the same advice they would give, you know, if you have, you know, like an indoor humidifier mm-hmm. is probably going to be more helpful than not. You know, if you don't have good like air ventilation, you know, in your home, like even cracking a window a little bit, you know, understanding that it's cold understanding we're making a lot of uh, not environmentally friendly decisions this winter this just is something that, that we've sort of built in um,
0: what about these what about these like uh, portable like air filters that people have in their homes like the HEPA air filters do those will, have in fact
2: will not hurt um, you know the we I don't think we have great data on it. again we have some anecdotal stuff that yes it seems like they can't help again they're not foolproof. But if, if you're going, if there's going to be people in your home that you, you know, haven't been isolating with for, for 10 days or more, um, any choice that you're making can lower your risk. You. And again, it, it, like we said, there's no, we don't have a great way of predicting yet who is going to be most likely to spread this. Unfortunately, the one area that we do have pretty good data on now that, that is, Frustrating from a public health spe- perspective, and I think from an economic perspective for people as well, is a choice for a local area. You know, like I said, I understand the, the difficulty in, you know, closing bars and gyms and restaurants. Um, we do have decent evidence that schools, while children, you know, especially under 10 or 11, can get the disease, can spread the disease, um, you know, on occasion will have a severe form of the disease, it's much more rare than it is in older populations. And and there's some biological reasons that you know we're sort of that we we've, we've toyed with that we don't have great evidence for yet. Kids may have more exposure to coronaviruses in general. Um, so you know kids are getting colds all the time. So they may just have more, you know, memory around in their their immune system. Um so
0: I think- and I think the worry that 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 some people I've seen express regarding the school issue is that the kids, you know, the the, the ultimate nightmare would be, sure, all the kids don't get sick to the point of, you know, maybe dying or even severe uh, symptoms, but all the kids in one class get sick, and then they all take it all At home, home. <laughs> and then pass it to their parents. Like, is that not a valid so concern?
2: It, it is a valid concern. Um, we also think, especially again, I'm talking teenagers, it looks like there's a, a gradient after kids are maybe 10, 12, maybe 13, that as they're approaching their young adult years, they continue to be less likely to have severe disease and less likely to spread the disease. Um, we do have evidence that that kids can pass the virus to adults, but are less likely to pass it to, to from, you know, from an adult than another adult. Again, this is, it's all a matter of,
3: all, yeah, I mean, we,
0: we're just running a giant Petri dish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we we're, you're, you know, you're trying to guess from the limited evidence that, you know, right. and
1: Lindsay, so, sorry. I,
2: mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. No, I just, so I think it's a matter of, of trying to weigh, you know, what would be the first and last thing in an area I would close, you know, it would probably be, you know, elementary and maybe middle schools. That it, from a public health perspective, I think most of us would design the response in such a way that, rather than having you know schools closed down and and bars and indoor restaurants you know still open, we would <laughs> probably do it the opposite way.
0: Oh, so close bars and restaurants first, schools last. You're saying?
2: Right. right. So Interesting. It's, again, it's never a matter of you know children and schools can't spread it, but they are, you know, given everything that we've seen, you know, way less likely than these other types of businesses that we're discussing. And, you know, you also have the added challenge of, you know, the at things kids are losing by not having, you know, in-person classes, the challenges that especially, you know, working women are finding um, over the course right. of the last year, trying to maintain a career while also full-time at-home parenting and, you know, homeschooling, essentially. Right.
0: What What about the other secondary effects? Now, th- for those that have, you know, th- there, there's definitely sort of, there seems to be two groups of people that seem to be, there's nobody that likes it, but there's one group that hates it less. <laughs> there's another group that really hates the idea of shutdowns and especially things like shutting down schools. And and that second group, one of the things that they mention are things like uh, domestic abuse and suicides and things that I'm hearing. Uh, and again, I don't know what the data is, but I'm hearing that th- that things like these are skyrocketing because everyone's stuck at home. Is, have you heard anything like that?
2: I, 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 I definitely think it's a concern. I think it's too early for us to have solid data yet. The most convincing data that I've heard that, yes, this is indeed continuing to be a challenge um, that we given all the, the circumstances we're currently in, we're really not sure how to respond to is, um, you know, domestic violence hotlines, just getting less calls. Um, when you're talking about like a child protective services system, just hearing less, you know, just not getting the number of cases referred that they normally do. So it's not that you're hearing more cases, it's that those, the normal number of cases and calls they would be expecting have just kind of vanished into thin air.
0: That sounds like the opposite of what I'm saying then.
2: No, no, what we're saying is we, these probably continue to be a problem, uh-huh. but because people are remaining at home in conditions that would not be conducive necessarily for attempting to leave and go to a shelter, oh. or you know, calling a domestic violence hotline, or you know, referring, or the situations where uh, potential abuse might be caught, you know, whether that's a school or another you know, right, right third space kind of thing. Is there's now cases that are probably happening that the individuals either no longer have the opportunity, or the stability, or the safety to try to reach out.
0: So, so that, so what, what I think I'm hearing you say is we, you, you, you haven't seen data that shows that it's definitely. Increasing,
2: we, there's we don't have a solid way to say for sure these cases are increasing. The fact that all of the sudden, all of this, the normal amount of you know data you would expect to be seeing dropped off. It's not like all of a sudden we think that you know there's there's way fewer cases of domestic violence or there's way fewer cases of children that need to be referred.
0: But that's surprising and a bit disturbing, right? Mm-hmm. Um.
2: So I mean, it does. It's a big worry, but the problem is, on on balance, we we don't know a way to improve that without making right, right. the you know the the epidemic risk worse. You know, right. across everyone else.
1: Does that also apply, though? I know Curtis, you were mentioning sort of people's uh, mental health is sort of being like isolated for so long does have a toll on people. Um, do you? See any data around that? I know you were talking previously specifically about like domestic violence and child abuse. What about for mental health?
2: Um, I think we are seeing an increase in um, reports of you know anxiety and depression. Um, You're and and, uh, going back to you know the emphasis I keep placing on you know the need to at least thinking about some way to keep schools functioning in some manner. You're especially seeing it among you know teenagers. You know, among kids, you know, people that are of the age where you are, you know, even more inclined and predisposed to to mentally and physically need that type of interaction with your peers. Um, you know, we are seeing it. We are we are also seeing, you know, an expansion of telehealth options in those areas, which mm-hmm. you know is a you know a beneficial externality um, of this, which I think is helping to alleviate. These challenges for some individuals, but you know we we are seeing this. You you are seeing it in places like nursing homes that were unable to let visitors in for a long time. That I think we're we're talking more about ways to relax those rules. You know whether it's you know having someone have you know some sort of test done within you know forty eight hours before they visit somebody and you know showing they are negative for the virus um, and then letting them in. And, you know, we're in a position now that we have, we do have more tests, you know, probably still not as many as we would like. We do have a better supply of personal protective equipment, again, probably not as to the levels that we would like to feel secure, but because we are in a different part of the epidemic and, you know, we're we're looking at, you know, a, a long winter, there are, you know, ways that we can adapt our recommendations to, to try to decrease some of these, these off effects.
0: Do you think the, the numbers are going to get as bad as some people have suggested with like 2000 deaths a day and things like that in the next coming months?
2: I don't know if we'll hit 2000 deaths a day. Um, definitely the range that I've heard is, you know, maybe another, another 150,000 deaths by inauguration day. Right. Which doesn't sound unreasonable. Um, you know, do I necessarily think we'll make it up to 2,000 deaths a day? Maybe not. But we're creeping up, you know, above a 1,000, averaging above a 1,000. Again, I think, you know, we're currently averaging about 1,100. You know, could we make it back up to 1,400, 1,500 deaths a day? You know, I think we could.
0: I'm looking at that spike and, you know, and it really looks like the line's going straight up. Right, and so far the number of deaths per day seems to be roughly a percentage point or ten percent. I think it's a percentage point of the number of cases per day from, you know, two weeks prior. That, that that somewhere in that neighborhood, and so that's why I'm like, if as we're as we're going up to in excess of one hundred and fifty thousand cases a day, uh, that, that, to me that is going to translate into 1,500 deaths a day in a few weeks. That's why, that's my...
2: It sounds back at the envelope, you know, where we could be. One of the other things that, from a medical perspective, we are happier about now than earlier in the pandemic is you can look across, you know, several studies, not just in the U.S., but also in Europe, patients that, you know, same risk factors, you know, regardless of age, going into the hospital, are doing better than they were at the beginning, you know, not really as a result of some like, you know, magic cure, or like silver bullet that we found, but just slow incremental improvements in being able to figure out who was the highest risk um, of having severe disease. So who really needed to be admitted to the hospital, you know, small treatments, like, you know, we know, when to give steroids now, which seem to make it a, a reasonable amount of difference. You know, we have a standard, a very consistent standard of care now for patients. So basically, you know, you, you know what to do when someone comes into the hospital. So across the board, people are doing better. Um, unfortunately, as we do see more cases, that number will continue to go up, not because you're more likely to to get more severely ill or to die as we as the winter goes along, but just because more and more people are getting sick. So if you're looking at a bigger total number of people, you're still going to be looking at an increasing number of deaths, even if an individual case is more likely to do better now than they were in the spring.
1: Are there also concerns, granted, that we're going into the flu season as well?
2: Uh, I'm, I'm going to say yes with an asterisk, um,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> because, you know, we, we want everyone to have their flu shots. And I, I think the numbers of uptake on this is, is actually looking, you know, relatively good compared to, what we normally say, you know, I think we maybe normally get like 50%. And I think we're, we're looking to improve on that by maybe 10%, 15%. But what we have seen because of the precautions that people are taking and just because of the decrease in, you know, in gatherings, if you look at the southern hemisphere, which would have been co- just coming out of its flu season now, and going into its spring, they had hard, they had a very, very mild season compared well, to where they've been in the past.
0: Combination we- of more people getting the vaccine and also people avoiding public gatherings and things.
2: Right. And, and masking, you know, we have a feeling that if if masking was, you know, a a normal thing that the flu seasons may look very different here. That's interesting. So so (laughs) we're, we're hoping that's what this season looks like. We've had good uptake with the vaccine, um, you know, where people's behavior, even, even with the exhaustion and fatigue that everyone's feeling, you know, you are still seeing a decrease in baseline for how much people are moving around and traveling and going out. So Washing their hands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're hoping all of these new um, kind of ingrained behaviors are going to make a big difference on that front as well. So you're not going to be seeing that 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 double pandemic that I know some people have been worried about.
0: Okay. Cause this pretty? I mean, it's just nothing but bad when you look on the news right now. <laughs>
2: You know, and the one the one I'm not I won't there's there's nothing positive about seeing this news. But the fact that it is making the news is a more encouraging sign because this trend has been bad for. Let me see the graphs I'm looking at since probably the end of end of September, uh, beginning of October. But because of how the spread worked this time. You know, we we had our spike in the spring that was predominantly, you know, West Coast. It was New York, it was Boston, Detroit, you know, New Orleans—places with a lot of media, places that you know people were familiar with, that you know would would catch a lot of attention. And then in the in the summer, as you saw temperatures going up in places in the Sun Belt and in California, where it was too hot for people to be outside. We started seeing numbers tick up in those areas where people were going inside to get into the air conditioning, um, you know. And again, and those places, you know, like Texas and Florida and California got bad. But then, you know, you had fairly strong responses from some of the local governments, whether it was the governor or mayors or county level. Um, and we also had some slack in the system. So if you were being inundated with cases in, say, El Paso. You had hospitals where you could transfer people to. You had staff that we could move around. Um, the challenge this time is where it started to get bad was, you know, the Upper Midwest, so places like North and South Dakota, um, Montana, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois. That I I just don't think caught as much. In the popular narrative you know whether that was competing against election news or everything else mm. but you know so those it's there and, now and, yeah and because they're said they're more rural places they have lower population so when you hear you know oh 40 cases were diagnosed today that doesn't sound like a lot when per capita for a place that doesn't have as many people it's can be as bad or worse than
0: i think there's only 45 people in north dakota <laughs> but, <laughs> so, sorry if you're so from North Dakota. yeah from north dakota
1: sorry <laughs> well and
2: i mean so i think that was the challenge of you know and we're going to see and we're seeing now numbers ticking up everywhere so for you know places like the dakotas and and iowa is having challenges in montana there's no more slack in the system not so much in a matter of we think we could scale, you know, beds if people needed them. We think we could probably scale, you know, protective equipment, still with some challenges, but more doable. But eventually you just run out of staff to, to man those beds. And that's when you're looking at, you know, I was talking about those case fatality numbers falling, you know, on an individual level, if you start running into problems of not having the people who have experience to man those beds. That's when we're concerned about those numbers drifting up again, Mm. because that's where we're going to get hit this time. And, you know, and, and, and now that things are particularly bad, you know, in that upper Midwest and the numbers have gotten bad again in Chicago, you know, doing, I think a two week shutdown and, you know, San Francisco that I know again was shutting down like indoor dining. And New York, which is teetering on, you know, whether or not they're gonna shut schools again. You know, now it's all getting attention, but you know, if you're looking at somewhere like, you know, the worst numbers I have seen were for El Paso this time, that you would prefer that of your patients in your intensive care beds, you know, at five percent COVID patients, you get nervous. At 10%, you actively start looking to, you know, how could we scale this up? El Paso was sitting at 40% the last time i looked and and there's just not a ton of give in the system so that right, was one right. of the places they were looking at you know at transferring people to military bases for treatment um
0: yeah you know and building, unfortunately it, building it, it, tents and all that and, stuff
2: and it so it's taken you know what are we you know five weeks out since it started this this sort of precipitous climb started and i'm looking at the same graphs you were in and the reason I say I, I could see it topping out at, you know, 200,000 cases a day, you know, are we probably going to hit that this week? I would guess so, because there's just, even if you look on a state by state level, I'm not seeing any slowing of that, of that curve yet.
0: Mm.
2: You know, that may come as right. places like North Dakota, finally, you know, mask mandate, places shutting down, as, as I think, yeah. last night. But because of the incubation period of this virus,
0: right, you know, right, any right.
2: decision we make today, you're looking at numbers two weeks from
0: now. Yeah, it takes a couple of weeks. Now, let me ask you one other question. Of one thing that has tr- confused me, as I, because you know, when we look at something like a New York versus a North Dakota per capita numbers has always been very helpful. One of the one of the numbers that they use a lot on the news about to show that an area is doing really poorly or or not so poorly is the case positivity rate right um you know the percentage of people who get tested that turn positive and and i've always thought that was a bad number because you could just make the number better by by having more tests right you know so, am i wrong there but what am i misunderstanding
2: you're so you're not wrong there i think from a public health perspective, you know, we, we, the reason we would use that number is to say, you know, we would always aim for you want it under 5%. What that does is let us know that we're testing enough for, you know, the amount of spread in the population. Okay.
0: Okay. So, so it, you're it, not, you're not okay. using
2: it to say, oh, you know, the, the outbreak isn't bad. We're using it to say, oh, we're at least testing enough that we're catching how bad the outbreak is.
0: But OK, I think, so the news is basically though, using it wrong.
1: And that's what I was just going to say is I think they're using it incorrectly.
2: <laughs> right. I, I mean, and it's so that's when you're seeing like, oh, you know, it's 20 percent positivity, 40 percent positivity when you're looking at their testing, you know, symptomatic people or people that are high risk. So, you know, the same was sort of true in, in New York or wherever at the beginning that you're expecting a lot of those test to come back positive
1: i was just reading today that uh, i forgot what state it was like oh if the positivity rate dropped from 2.74 to 2.33 and i was like that makes it seem like it's awesome but like curtis was saying it's like okay but what does that really mean it means they did 20 more
0: tests (laughs)
2: that's that's where right now that it's you need to be taking the entire All of the numbers into consideration. I mean, because we also rely a lot on daily tests, and the problem with daily, you know, or sorry, daily cases is, you know, people saying, oh, you know, we now have a record number of cases. I think it was one hundred seventy thousand or something yesterday. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't know how many people were infected back in the spring. Right. Right. It's just it's just what
0: we have in terms of testing. Yeah. 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 Right. So that's where you.
2: mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I was just said I think I saw North Dakota. Had a fifty percent positivity rate, and and that sounds really bad. But it, I'm I'm really glad. I'm, I'm I'm thank you so much for your explanation because that. <laughs> so basically, it's a number that technically is worthless to us. It's it's more to <laughs> it's more to people like you to say if you're at a fifty percent positivity rate, you are probably missing tons of <laughs> de- right, right. cases it, 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 because me, you're not doing enough an tests. Alarm.
2: And it's it's meant to give you if you look at that number in conjunction with everything else. Gotcha. gotcha. So, like, one of the one of the groups that I I work with, I do science communication with um, the the COVID tracking project, and they don't even, on a public basis, report test positivity because it's such a a difficult metric to not just get your head around, like, in a news report, what does it mean, but like states reported differently. You know, what's in your denominator, what's in your numerator. Like, it's just. It's for, you know, someone to glance at and say, wow, you know, 50%, all you can do is look at that and say, you know, if we're testing at a, you know, not super low amount, that means, wow, we're just missing a ton of cases. And that's basically what you can do with that at a public health level.
0: See what I mean? We talked for nearly 40 minutes and we still haven't talked about the vaccine. So this is why I decided to cut here. And next week, uh, we will have the Hope episode. So see you then. Thanks again to the listeners, and make sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all.
3: There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spit. Finally, I needed your backup. You had chance to fix it instead it's all jacked up see how i write on facebook about you don't underestimate the things that i will do there was a file but i deleted it too bad your backup system isn't worth the space store it all. run hoping that just for once it'll be completely done maybe